You're listening to audio from Mercy's Door Community Church in Mascouda, Illinois. If you'd like to get more information about Mercy's Door, we'd love for you to connect with us on Facebook or check us out at mercysdoor.org. One of the things that I love around this season as it begins to get dark at what time? Sunsets, I think, 1.30 in the afternoon at this point in time, something like that. I think that's right. Yeah, we live in Alaska, okay, the North Pole. Uh, One of the things that I love about this season, and if I'm being honest, and if you know me, there's not a lot of things I love about seasons of gray, dreary, cold, and darkness. Uh, The Lord is sanctifying me through that. Uh, But one of the things I love is that this is the season, right, when everybody has a favorite show. Because bedtime occurs like five hours before actual bedtime, you've got a lot of runway in there to get through a lot of Netflix, Okay, and so I I always have people kind of recommending shows to me. Now, here's the only problem. I am like a fiercely loyal person, right? So if you've ever been friends with me, and uh, there are people, a few people here that know this, and you've made like a sarcastic comment about anything that I would declare as mine, from like my kids to like my favorite sweater to like a pine cone in my yard, okay? I'm like Papa Bear loyal to a fault. But that, that goes for my shows as well. And so once I've entered into a show, no other show exists to my heart, okay? I've given myself to it, mind, body, and soul. I don't know what that means, but it sounds creepy. But I'm, I'm in. And so people give me these shows to watch, and I'm like, hey, that's fantastic. They sound amazing. But I'm smack dab in the middle of Downton Abbey, and I'm not going to deviate, okay? Y'all can chuckle all you want. Right? But I was supposed to have been born in the 1950s as a royal in England. Um, my life would be a lot more interesting, maybe. But one of the shows that someone recently recommended for me was a show called Made that was on in Netflix. Anybody see that show? One and a half people have seen that show. Two and a half, three and a half, four. Do I hear five? Okay, excellent. We're going to need to speed up our processing speeds or this sermon is going to really drag on. All right, a few of you have seen the show. And so I haven't gotten to watch it, so please, I always like fear this when I like reference a movie that parents are like, well, pastor said we can watch it with our three-year-old. It's not what I'm saying right now, okay? I haven't gotten a chance to watch the show. I've seen a couple clips. I've uh, seen the trailer of it. And because I'll probably never get to it, I read through the whole plot story of the first season. And the show centers around a woman named Alex. Alex is a single mom that is leaving, is exiting out of an emotional and physically abusive relationship. And she's got one little daughter that she is struggling to make a life for. And so this story, which has some incredibly intense moments in it, It does a really good job of depicting the truth of hurt and harm in the midst of this world, in the midst of, honestly, everyone's life. But it also does a great job of depicting the value of love in the midst of it. If you had to sum up the story of this woman, this family, this show, I think you might use the word perseverance. That in the midst of everything that's going wrong, in the midst of a million challenges, she perseveres 
That word perseverance, the, the, the definition is to continue in a course of action, even in the face of difficulty or overwhelming odds. To continue on in a course of action in the face of difficulty, even with little to no prospect of success. This mom is committed to her course of action, to make a way, a life for herself as she's been abandoned, as her daughter has been abandoned. You know, perseverance is one of those traits, and there are several, I think, in our culture that we esteem highly, but that none of us really want to be applied to our life. Right? Perseverance, we know, is one of those qualities that when we hear about it, right, when we watch movies about it, I don't know if you guys saw the movie Unbreakable that came out several years ago, right? It stirs something in our souls that this is good and right and as it ought to be. And yet, if we're honest, nobody wants to persevere because perseverance inherently means that we don't currently have what we want. That we're not in the circumstances that we desire. We are a people of instant gratification. It's why Netflix is beautiful. It's why Amazon is a multi-billion dollar company and why they almost lost my service when during a pandemic, you know, they had to do something like go away from next day shipping. Is that, was that just me? Okay, I'm sorry. I... I thought we were being real. We were a family here, but apparently not. You guys can just judge me, and then I'm going to lavish myself with the grace of Jesus this morning. Right? We, we are instant gratification people. We are super quick to change. Right? My generation especially, nobody is in the same job their entire career. No one works for the same company their entire career. We're quick to start over. Right? When we get to the, the edge of something that feels like resistance, we don't push through, we, we begin again. We're a people that like options. We have a fear of missing out. We want our best life now. And the truth is that none of those character traits match up with perseverance. Because perseverance inherently lays out our options down. It enters fully into whatever we are committing ourselves to, even in the midst of difficulty. It means being a part of a story to see your way through trouble, difficulty, struggle, suffering to the other side. But we don't know, typically, how far that other side is going to be. The Christmas story is a story of perseverance. Now, you won't find that in songs or Hallmark cards or Hallmark movies or Hallmark magnets or stuffed animals or anything else owned by the people of Christmas Hallmark. But you will find it by the author of Christmas. You will find it by our God. Because at the heart of it, the coming of Jesus is a story of perseverance. 
It's the story of a God who graciously continues on in the path of redemption, even though he is repeatedly met with resistance, rebellion, and rejection by the very people that he has come to save. It's the story of a God whose love perseveres, who continues on, even when we would not continue on in that same way. Now, this might not feel like a warm, fuzzy retelling of Christmas. But I've said this before, Christmas is real joy. And it's real joy that comes out of real brokenness. One of my favorite quotes that I've ever heard is that the gospel is good news. But when something is good news, it inherently means it's news that's invading bad spaces. And that's what Christmas is. It doesn't overlook pain. It doesn't ask you to paint a plastic smile on your face. But instead, it is a miraculous moment, a culmination of world history where God comes to forever heal what we have broken. Christmas is about love that perseveres. And perhaps there's no better place to see that persevering love than in the Gospel of Matthew in this passage that we just read from verses 18 to 25. The story begins like this. Now the birth of Jesus Christ took place in this way. When his mother Mary had been betrothed to Joseph, so engaged, promised, legally binded to Joseph, Before they came together, before they knew themselves intimately, physically, she was found to be with child from the Holy Spirit. And her husband, Joseph, being a just man and being unwilling to put her to shame, resolved to divorce her quietly. Now, Matthew begins the the story of Christmas after the genealogy that we looked through last week with two sentences that we kind of browse through quickly, but contain a world of intrigue and emotion. I've said this before, but when you read Scripture, you have got to engage your mind and your heart. Because like a biography, which this is, these are real people that really lived, that really were impacted by the Lord, loved by the Lord, led by the Lord. And that includes Mary and Joseph. I ordered a a, a book actually for my kids earlier on in December. And then when I got it, I read the back cover and I stole it from them. Like any good father would. The book is called The Promise and the Light. And it's a retelling of the Christmas story, but much like if you've seen the, the, the show The Chosen, it, it seeks to kind of fill in the, the rest of the story that we don't get to hear. And it doesn't claim to be inerrant or canonical or anything else, but it's plausible. In fact, it's, it's likely. And the story spends a, a good amount of time engaging from when Mary was told that she would conceive and bear a child by the Holy Spirit until 
this point in the story when Joseph decides that he is going to quietly divorce her. It begins by describing the hope of the betrothal between Joseph and Mary. Just like anyone else, this was the hope of a new family. Joseph would have started immediately as a carpenter working to build a room onto her parents, his parents' home. The place that, that him and Mary would live and one day their family would live. And then the shock of the message from the angel to Mary. The fear that she must have experienced after that message. Yes, she was the favored one of God who would carry the coming Messiah. But she was also an unwed teenage girl who was about to be pregnant. The devastation that must have occurred when Joseph found out. Likely him struggling with assuming that Mary was unfaithful to him. Trying to figure out what to do and then the end of the hope that began with the betrothal as Joseph decided that there was nothing else he could do. And that the most loving thing that he could do was to quietly send her away. This is what's captured here in verses 18 and 19. Dreams, hopes, plans, connections that at this point in time seem shattered. Right? Let Christians never be called those that operate apart from reality. Let us never be known as a theoretical people who with our platitudes skate across the surface of the brokenness of the world because our God does not do that. And the scriptures that testify to him don't do that. They engage in the muck and the mire of humanity with a real love for real people. And out of this less than cheerful, plastic, hallmark holiday story, real love is about to break through. Persevering love is about to show itself. Now let me pause for a second and give you a note on how we are meant to read Scripture. If you grew up in the church, at some point in time, you likely heard a sermon on David and Goliath. And in the midst of that sermon, it probably ended with the point that sounded like this. You too can be like David and slay your Goliaths. Now that's, that's true, the Lord may use you in big and powerful ways, but the point of that story is not about David's heroism. And it's not about your secretly untapped potential. It's about the power of our God. Tim and Kathy Keller put it this way. They were once talking in a, a marriage conference, and Kathy, his wife, who's every bit as brilliant as Tim is, got up and she was Speaking, and she said, in every relationship, in every marriage, you're playing constantly one of two roles. You're either loving people like Jesus, or you're being loved like Jesus. But regardless of which role, whether you're the spouse that is loving like Jesus, or whether you're the recipient of that love, you're always being loved by Jesus. 
Sometimes we are called to imitate, to take on, to allow the love of Christ to overflow from us. And sometimes we are called to receive that love from other people. But all the while, the most important person in either one of those situations is not us, but is Christ, the one who is love, the one who shows love, the one who gives love to us. And so as we look at this story, the Christmas story in general, as we see the angel, as we see Joseph, and as we see Mary, the takeaway from this is not love like Joseph. The takeaway is be loved like Joseph. Be loved like Mary. Be loved by our God. Do you understand? If you don't, raise your hand. I'll stop and we'll go back through it. But I want us to look this morning at the persevering love of God. How love is meant and in this passage does persevere. It starts in verse 20. And the persevering love of God that remembers. As Joseph is preparing, we are told, to put Mary away quietly in order to avoid her shame, we're told this, but as he considered these things, behold, an angel of the Lord appeared to him in a dream saying, Joseph, son of David, do not fear to take Mary as your wife, for that which is conceived in her is from the Holy Spirit. Joseph is preparing to divorce Mary, which is actually a great kindness on his part. The Jewish law of the time said that a woman betrothed or married who commits adultery is liable to be stoned. Now that doesn't mean it was always carried out, but at best, Joseph, in order to retain his own honor, would ensure that everyone knew that the fault was with Mary that she was unfaithful, and that no sin had he committed. But Joseph, being kind, loving, a just man, decides that he will quietly end the betrothal so that no shame need come, or no additional shame need come to Mary. But in the midst of that, we're told that an angel comes and appears to him. The word angel comes from the Greek word that means messenger. Angels were primarily royal spokesmen for the Lord. When they spoke, the Lord spoke. Now here's why this, this angel, this messenger, this one who comes to speak on behalf of the Lord, here's why this is so important here in Matthew chapter 1. I want you to do me a favor if you have a, a paper Bible. I want you to take your right hand and put it on the left page. It's fantastic. There are three people with this, so this will be just exciting for me. And I want you to turn one page back. Now, if you don't have a study Bible, and that's my big caveat, if you have a study Bible, turn some more. But if you don't have a study Bible, you know what you come upon? Malachi chapter 4 in the Old Testament. This is what it says in Malachi chapter 4, beginning in verse 1. For behold, the day is coming, 
burning like an oven, when all the arrogant and evildoers will be stubble. The day that is coming shall set them ablaze, said the Lord of hosts, so that it will leave them neither root nor branch, but for you who fear my name. The sun of righteousness shall rise with healing in its wings, and you shall go out leaping like calves from the stall. It may be one page in our Bible, but it was five hundred years in reality in between that saying of Malachi 4 and this message from the Lord. There had been no new prophet. There had been no new revelation. No new divine promises from the Lord in 500 years. If you want to just put that into context for two seconds. That's like two histories of our country. You're twice as close to the wooden teeth of George Washington as Joseph was to the promise of Malachi 4. 500 years of suffering, 500 years of subjugation, multiple rulers, And finally, the Lord speaks. And the Lord tells Joseph that he has not forgotten his promises, but indeed has come to finally fulfill them. He has come to announce the Messiah, the Savior, is finally coming. Now this is why we we constantly are pushing for us to read Scripture as a whole as what it is, one amazing, truthful story of redemption. Because when you read the entirety of Scripture from left to right, you'll find that the Lord has been for centuries making promise after promise after promise concerning redemption and healing and restoration. I've told you this before, the first promise of Jesus occurs not in the New Testament, but in the first pages of Genesis. And as time has gone on through Genesis, Exodus, Leviticus that we've just gone through, through the time of the judges and the time of the kings, through the times that they are are swept away from the promised land because of their sin and rebellion, two things has occurred over all of that time. First, the rebellion and sin and rejection of humanity has only grown and increased. And two, the promises of our God has only increased all the more. We sing that song all the time, and every time I'm like on tears when we sing it, our sins, they are many, but His mercy is more. Or as Romans puts it, As sin increased, the grace and mercy of our God increased all the more. Our God has not forgotten His promises. In fact, in the midst of our rebellion, He's made more. I was just thinking through Isaiah and Jeremiah and a few of the other prophets that we find at the end of our Old Testament, right? which would have been the height of Israel's sin. 
Israel and Judah, because the people of God are so sinful and so rebellious that they've fractured the kingdom of God. And now these two sub-kingdoms have so rejected the Lord, have so turned their eyes to idolatry, that the Lord has taken the promised land from them, and they have been swept away by pagan powers. And in this time, in that sin, the Lord gives promises that sound like, I will send you Emmanuel, God with you. He makes promises like, I will give you a servant who will suffer on your behalf and bear the guilt due to you. He makes promises like, I will pour out my spirit upon you. It will indwell all of my people. And he gives a promise that finally a king is coming who will save us from our greatest enemies. Persevering love is a love that remembers. Persevering love remembers why it began and remembers what its purpose is. And the Lord has shown us in His Word that His purpose is to reconcile all things to Himself. And He has shown us not just His intention to reverse the curse of sin and death, but that when He makes promises, He remembers them and He fulfills them. That He comes for us. It remembers day after day after day. It does not forget, it does not neglect, and it does not turn away. So if you are loved by this persevering love, you will never find a day where you are alone. You will never find a day where you are neglected, where you are abandoned, where you are cast off. You will never find a day where the love of the Lord does not remember His promises. The persevering love of the Lord remembers. And second, the persevering love of the Lord produces. The story goes on. The angel says in 21, She, Mary, will bear a son, and you shall call his name Jesus, for he will save his people from their sins. All this took place to fulfill what the Lord had written by the prophet. Behold, the virgin shall conceive and bear a son, and they shall call his name Emmanuel, which means God with us. The promise of the angel to Joseph and to us here is that Mary will conceive and bear a son, one who will be a Savior, God with us. Now, if you just read this passage, and as I was reading it, the, the word that kind of is repeated and sticks out as this kind of drumbeat is that she will bear a son. She will bear a son. The virgin will conceive and bear a son. That word bear literally means to, to bring forth, to beget. It's a great word. Or to produce. It's not a word that we use oftentimes in our language to bear. But it means more than just deliver. It means more than just carry. At its core, this word bear, it's a, it's a horticultural word, honestly. It's a word of nature that describes plants. It describes when a seed is buried in the ground, when it then dies and then grows and produces, when it bears fruit. 
The Lord is saying that my love, my persevering love that will come through Mary and the child that is to be born will produce a Savior. It will bear the fruit of redemption. The persevering love of God produces for us a Messiah for all humanity. It produces salvation that we so desperately need. And here's why this is so vital. Because as we just described, there is a long season in between when a seed is planted and when we can finally taste the fruit that has been produced. There's a a singer-songwriter named Chris Renzema that I love, and he's got a song, I think it's called Springtime, and and in it he's got a, a line that says, God, he's made four seasons, but only one spring. And what he's saying is, There's four seasons that we walk through in any given year, but only one of them produces new fruit. Only one of them produces new life. Only one of them casts off the burden of winter and brings forth a green shoot. Just one. Which means we are constantly, except for springtime, in a season that feels like death. We're either trying to hold on to what has been produced in the spring or we are patiently waiting for what will finally come. And the Lord God says that my love will, without fail, without hesitation, without equivocation, will produce my intended consequences. Now now hear this. It doesn't mean that he and his love will produce at the speed that you desire. It does not mean that it will produce along the timeline that you desire. And it will not even mean that it will produce in the way that you desire. Think of Joseph for a second. For Joseph, it meant that his salvation would be produced through the birth of a child by his wife that wasn't his. Joseph would never write the story this way. But surely he desires the intended consequences. The angel reminds him that this baby will have two names. Jesus, which means he will save his people, and Emmanuel, which means he is God in human flesh. We must embrace the persevering love of God even now in our lives, because it's our only hope that He will bear the fruit in our lives, in this church, and in this world that He has promised. We throw around our little coffee cup verse that He who began a good work in you will surely see it to completion. But when you tie that to Romans 8.32, that He who did not spare His own Son but gave him up for us all. How much more can we be assured that his love will produce exactly what he tells us? The persevering love of the Lord remembers and it produces and it sacrifices. Verse 24 says this, when Joseph woke from his sleep, this vision that he had of the angel, He did as the angel of the Lord commanded, and he took 
his wife. Matthew's recording is, is short and sweet of Joseph's response. He hears the Lord and he obeys. But surely there would have been far more struggle and wrestle than just this one sentence. Even if this cleared up any doubts that Joseph had about Mary's unfaithfulness, his response to go and take Mary as his wife would be costly. This is one of the things that the book does such a great job that I read in putting into words and and pictures and images if, if Joseph took Mary as his wife, what he would be doing is confirming to the world around him that he had produced this child out of wedlock. He would be stepping into Mary's shame and guilt and also bearing that shame and guilt. The ridicule would no longer just be hers, it would be his as well. His name, his reputation would be sullied. As the type of man who would not, could not, and did not obey the word of the Lord. In order to love Mary, in order to fulfill the loving plan of the Lord, Joseph would have to sacrifice. Love is inherently costly. It's in its definition. It is to give of yourself to Another, C.S. Lewis, in a quote that I love, he said this, To love at all is to be vulnerable. Love anything, and your heart will be wrung and possibly broken. If you want to make sure of keeping your heart intact, you must give it to no one, not even an animal. Instead, wrap it carefully round with hobbies and little luxuries, and avoid all entanglements. Lock it up safe in the casket or coffin of your own selfishness. But in that casket, safe, dark, motionless, airless, it will change. It will not be broken. It will become, in fact, unbreakable, impenetrable, irredeemable, because to love is to be vulnerable. Joseph is called by the Lord to give away his reputation, to give away his good name, to give away what he had worked hard to build up in order to love Mary and ultimately to love the Lord. But little could he fully fathom how this sacrifice of his for his wife and soon-to-be son would pale in comparison to the sacrifice that his son would one day make in exchanging his righteousness for Joseph and our sinfulness. And listen, the truth is that persevering love is not just sacrificial, but it's sacrificial and it knows it is. It's not a blind or ignorant love. It knows and counts the cost. I remember a few years ago, I've said this all along, I always love those commercials where, like, it's Christmas and it's snowing and, uh, you know, a husband comes home and his wife is like, I have a surprise for you. And he's like, oh, fantastic. And they walk outside and in the driveway is this brand new, like, Lexus with the bow on top. I love those commercials. I dream about them sometimes. 
But I remember saying that one, one time, and one of my kids just really sweetly saying, Dad, I'm going to get you a new car for Christmas. And I thought to myself, oh, buddy, you don't know how much a new car costs. And you don't have any money. Right? It was real sweet. It was genuine. It was sweet. But he didn't know what he was talking about. He didn't know the actual cost. But our God does. On the inside of my left arm is a tattoo of a cross and olive branches. And those olive branches, to me, are deeply important because it portrays what I find to be perhaps the most beautiful scene in all of Scripture, which is Jesus on his face in Gethsemane. Gethsemane means olive press. It would have been a garden of olive trees. And there, in the midst of that garden, the persevering love of Christ stared the wrath of God due to all humanity in the face, began to taste it, to be crushed by it, and out of love for me and you and obedience to his heavenly Father, he said, not my will be done, but yours. The Advent story, the coming of Christ from the very moment that he came was a story of persevering love saturated in sacrifice. Persevering love remembers. Persevering love produces. It sacrifices and finally it embraces. The story ends like this in verse 25. But Matthew knew her not until she had given birth to a son, and he called his name Jesus. You know, the story ends in, again, a really quiet way, but with an incredibly important phrase. Not only did Mary and Joseph not know each other physically, intimately, until after the birth, but it also tells us that when Jesus came, Joseph called his name Jesus. Now here's why that's important. Because to name a child is to claim a child. The moment that Joseph named the son Jesus, he staked his claim that that child was his you know, Rachel and I's story is, is surrounded by stories of adoption, and our own life has been touched by it deeply. My, my favorite part of every adoption story is the part where the, the judge declares that the adoption is final, and the new birth certificate comes in the mail. And the birth certificate, from that date forward, has the name, not of who they quote-unquote once were, but who they now forever will be as a beloved child in a beloved family. Joseph's love is a love that reflects an embracing, adopting manner. He does not stay at a distance. He doesn't seek to simply help out someone else's problems. He enters in and takes those problems on himself. We've had people leave GC before because it's messy. And it is. 
Because in GC, we don't serve people. We enter in and we care for people and take their problems on as our own. It's fully entering in. It's why we use the word family in this church. Listen, if you think that I've got some sort of kind of theoretical, romantic, rose-colored glasses view of family, I don't. I'm not talking about Hallmark family when we talk about family. I'm talking about the family that fights but doesn't leave. I'm talking about the family that gets mad enough that they do leave and yet they reconcile. I'm talking about the family that knows all of the warts and the hardships. Because that's what love, persevering love does. It fully embraces. The Lord fully embraces. He embraces us. I think about the Old Testament and the ways that the Lord began to try and reconcile and redeem humanity in beautiful ways he gives us his law he comes and he dwells near and in the midst of people to be a constant reminder an example of what holiness is he ties the flourishing of israel in the promised land to their continued obedience and rejection of sin so that they might see that keeping their lives holy leads to good things he uses discipline and punishment as a deterrence against sin and idolatry. And each of these measures are incredibly gracious gifts. He need not have given a single one. And yet eventually, the Lord not, does not just help to answer and address our problem, but He takes our problem on Himself. He who knew no sin, became our sin so that we might become the righteousness of God. It's why Jesus, in that great invitation in Matthew 11, says, Come, all who labor and are heavy laden, and I will give you rest. Take my yoke upon you. He says, bring your burdens Bring your stress, bring your, your doubts, your fears, your sins, all that cling and weigh you down. Give them to me and take my yoke upon you. God's love is beautiful and amazing, but he doesn't just stand far away. He doesn't shoot Cupid's arrow and go on his way. He comes in all the way in and embraces our need as his own. Now listen, this is a big picture I've painted. It's a big love that we've described, and it is hard to understand. I will forever remember the day that I married Rachel and we exchanged vows face to face. But about three or four years ago, as we were just kind of recalling our lives together, our marriage and our wedding day, we said to each other, we'd love to renew our vows. And we'd love to renew our vows because looking back, we had no clue what we were saying. We were promising things that we had no clue about. No clue what it would cost us, what it would take. We had no clue what the real definition of words like love and commitment and patience and sacrifice. You go on a two-day road trip with five kids? 
That's patience and sacrifice. And so we were like, man, we'd love to do that. We'd love to be able to, to renew our vows. And then we planted a church and things got busy and we had another kid and things got busy and you know, yada, 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 right? And you know what? Now I sit here and I'm like three years ago, we didn't know what our vows meant. And three years from now, I'm going to look back and be like, that guy was an idiot. He didn't know what he was talking about. This is love. Right? Like, but it's this idea that our ability to see and understand love grows. God's love doesn't grow for us. It is already perfect, full, lavish. But whether this is your first advent that you have celebrated as the true gift of Christ or your 50th, this is an opportunity for us to see and savor and taste the love of God. See and savor and taste the love of God. It's my prayer for us this Advent that we would see this love that is beyond what we could fathom and that perhaps this season, this day, this moment in our lives, just a little bit more, we would taste and see and know that the Lord is good and that as a church we would respond. God, to you be all glory and all honor and all praise. Pray with me.